A financial budget that, uh, that happened this past week, that financial budget has seemed to sort of spark the countdown to the 2015 general election. I think it is but, I don't know, six or seven weeks until the people of the United Kingdom, we go to the polls. Now, what an upcoming general election tends to do for an awful lot of people is bring into focus the dissatisfaction that they have with society. Isn't that true? Aren't we seeing an awful lot of that just now in this country? A people's desire for change. You know, we're seeing that with the, the rise of political parties like, like UKIP. We're seeing it with the, <laughs> the vast number of Scots who have recently voted for, for independence. You know, there is this, there's a desire for change. People are looking around and they are seeing the corruption of leadership. They are seeing corruption of laws and quite simply people are yearning for something different. Well, I think we've got to be honest. I mean, regardless of, of who we vote for, regardless of the outcome of May's general election, the chances are there's not going to be sort of sweeping change that, that comes through the whole of the United Kingdom. But as we turn this morning... To Acts chapter 19, friends, that is exactly what we do see. Because what we've got here is a city. What we've got in Acts chapter 19 is a culture that experiences a dramatic and a lasting and a, a real transformation. A whole city transformed. So what we are going to do this morning is really just to consider together what it is, or rather, how it is, that that sort of real and deep-rooted transformation can and does come about. So I invite you to please turn with me, if you would have your Bibles open, to Acts chapter 19. And let's, let's look at a few points from this section of Scripture. Let's consider firstly that, that, that transformation, you know, cultural or community transformation, it comes through the gospel. It comes, this sort of transformation, it comes only through the gospel. Okay. So the passage you've got in front of you there begins in, chap, in verse 23. You have a look at it. It begins with the news that in Ephesus, the city that we've been dealing with for the last couple of weeks, there arose a great disturbance. Now, we've got to kind of ask, well, wait a minute, what's caused that disturbance? What's causing the unrest in Ephesus? And when, when we look at the text, what we find, <coughs> excuse me, is that really and truly the unrest in Ephesus was caused by godliness. That the disturbance in that city was caused by the gospel. Because think about it. Think about what we saw last week. You remember what's been happening in Ephesus? Were you here last week? Do you remember it? Paul's come into that city Remember, he's met the, the dozen guys, the dozen dudes of Ephesus, and they've been changed. And then Paul's bissed himself in that lecture hall of Tyrannus, and he's, and he's, he's preaching the gospel. And do you remember that marvelous thing that we were told last week in Scripture? We were told that not just in Ephesus, but the gospel hit the whole, think about it, the whole of the province of Asia. Do you see what that means, though? That means that 
countless people, vast numbers of people in this city were coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. Isn't it beautiful? But look at this. Think about what's happening here. People are not liking this in Ephesus. There's some in that city, they're seeing all of these changed lives and they're not liking it one little bit. The gospel is causing problems. It's causing issues. Now, here's what I want you to do. Follow me here as we notice in what ways society was changed by the gospel in Ephesus. There's a couple of things to notice. Notice firstly that, you see here that the gospel was changing the economic landscape of this city. The gospel was changing the economic landscape. (coughs) Now, I don't know if you're old enough to remember, (coughs) or even if you've seen footage of the trade union meetings that uh, took in this country in the sort of early 1980s, you know? Maybe you're not old enough, maybe you've never seen it, but at the time of the minor sort of strikes in this country, there was a lot of trade union meetings. And if you see the footage of them, I will put this, these trade union meetings were kind of animated affairs, you know? They they tended to be kind of lively. Well, that is the sort of thing that we've got to be thinking about and picturing in Ephesus. Because you'll notice what we're told. We're told about this guy called Demetrius. Now, he, he's a guy who, who makes his living, it seems, out of uh, making these little uh, silver shrines to the goddess Artemis. Now, do you see what Demetrius does? Demetrius gets a trade union meeting going, doesn't he? He gets all of his friends and his colleagues together, and it's a bit of a lively affair. Because he's complaining about the Christians. He's saying to his colleagues, you see these Christians? You see these people who've had their lives changed? They are ruining, they are threatening our industry. They are threatening our very livelihood. Because you see, friends, what's happened in Ephesus, don't you? These people have been saved. And they are now changing the way they spend their money. Aren't they? They're no longer, they're saved by Christ. They're no longer spending the money they used to do. They're no longer spending it on foolish little trinkets and and idols. In fact, you know what you could say? You could say that because of the gospel, that the Christians were willing to take a financial hit. Do me a favor, look at verse 19. Look at verse 19. Now remember what we saw last week. The Christians saw the power of the Holy Spirit. And they repented. Now look at the form of the repentance here in verse 19. (coughs) What do they do? They burn their scrolls. And it's to the tune of 50,000 drachmas. Now that might not mean all that much. I don't know if you've got the sort of currency rate going around in your head. But do you know what that is? That there is the equivalent of millions and millions and millions of pounds. Very literally going up in smoke. In Ephesus, do you see what's happened? Vast numbers of people changed by grace in that city. And the economic landscape is shifting. There's another thing to notice here. Not just economically. Notice that in Ephesus, the the gospel is changing the cultural landscape as well. Now, my wife and I were talking a couple of days ago about this desire that I've got to go one day and see Athens. I really want to go. I don't 
really know why I've got this down desire to go. It's probably one of those weird things where I've done a sort of school project on it when I was a little kid and it's kind of lodged in the back of my mind and I've got to go to Athens. I've got to go and see the Parthenon. I want to go and see the Parthenon. Well, get this. See the temple that is mentioned in Acts chapter 19 here. This temple to Artemis. You ready for this statistic? It was four times the size of the Parthenon. I mean, this thing was massive. And what we've got to understand because of that is that this temple to Artemis, it dominated Ephesus. Now, I don't just mean that it dominated it physically. I mean that the temple to Artemis, it dominated everything about Ephesus. It dominated tourist trade. Can you imagine everyone flocking to come into the city to see the temple? It dominated the cultural and the religious personality of this city. Now, look what happens in verse 27. Demetrius, in this trade union meeting, he says, look, because of these Christians, because of the gospel, what does he say? Verse 27. There's the danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, so he's saying to his colleagues, not only are we losing cash because of these Christians, what does he say? He says that the temple will be discredited and that Artemis herself will be robbed of her majesty. Friends, do you see what is going on here? People in Ephesus are coming to Christ and having their sins forgiven. They're coming in droves. And they are having their very understanding of the city, the very understanding of the identity radically reshaped. Do you see the city? I mean, economically, culturally, religiously, everything is is, is being transformed. And it's being transformed by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so because of that, I've got a couple of questions to ask you the Congregation of London City Presbyterian Church. First one. You see this in Ephesus. Do you believe that this can happen again? Like, Do you believe that a culture like this, do you believe that an entire city can experience real gospel change? Do you believe that? Like, Do you believe that maybe your group of friends bigger than that? Do you believe that the community in which you live may be bigger than that? Do you believe that this city that we're living in just now, do you believe that this can experience some sort of transformation? Do you believe that? I'm telling you this morning in the name of Jesus Christ that this can happen. That's the power of the gospel. In fact, we are seeing this in other parts of the globe. In parts of Southeast Asia and maybe even parts of South America, we are seeing multitudes of people, they're flocking to Christ, they're having their, their lives changed, entire cultures affected by the gospel. This can happen again. Second question. Like you see what's happening in Ephesus, don't you? Like you're seeing that gospel living is really threatening Demetrius and his colleagues, don't you? Like he's looking at these Christians and he's looking at the way they live and Demetrius and all these other people, they are, they are really, really challenged by, by that way of living. So here's my question and I want you to heed it. 
Are the people in your life threatened and challenged by the way that you live? As a Christian, is that true of you? Are they? I mean, do people look at the way that you live and do they feel actually quite uncomfortable about a different set of values, if you like? But do they feel uncomfortable by an entirely different way of life? I mean, do do people look at you as, as, as a Christian and do they see a life so radically changed, so radically transformed by Jesus Christ that it infiltrates into every single area of your existence. And does that make them feel uncomfortable? Is that happening? Friends, I I think we should be, honestly, as a, a group of people this morning, we should be really encouraged and enthused by what we're seeing in Acts chapter 19. Because what we've got here, what we see is not only the power of the gospel to to transform lives, What we see in Acts chapter 19 is the potential of the gospel to transform cities. Okay, secondly, please note here that that transformation, community transformation, it involves a spiritual battle. It involves a spiritual battle. So, if you're following me so far, you you see that... uh, Transformation, gospel transformation is possible. Transformation is possible through the gospel. But what we see in Acts 19 and this episode in Ephesus, I think, is a real window into the war. What you've got in, in Acts 19 is a window into the spiritual battle that rages around gospel transformation. And there are, of course, two sides to that spiritual battle. So first of all, I want you to see here the opposition to the gospel in Ephesus. Now I said just a moment ago, one day I want to go to Athens and I want to go and see the Parthenon. Like, get this, you know, ten times more than I want to go to Athens. I want to go to uh, the ruins of the city of Ephesus. So I'm saying to you as a congregation, like, see, British Museum, just forget it. Or some park somewhere, forget it. Like, our next congregational outing, <laughs> we're going to Ephesus, you know? No, no expense spared. We are going to Ephesus. Because you see, Ephesus is fantastic. I mean, it is beautifully preserved. Now, you've noticed in that portion of scripture that there is mention a few times of a theater in Ephesus. It's mentioned there in Acts 19. Like, get this! It's still there! You know, and it's beautifully preserved. And you, you approach Ephesus and it's kind of built into the hill and it is absolutely massive. You know, this theater, this arena picture, it seats or it fits, accommodates 25,000 people. It's beautiful. Now, you see, though, what happens in that theater and arena here, though, don't you? Like on the back of this trade union meeting, Demetrius has managed to stir up the masses of, of Ephesus. And they're in a frenzy now. And what you see what they do? They grab Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's companions, and they drag them through Ephesus and they throw them into this theater. They throw them into this arena, all of these thousands of people. But it's the sheer, unadulterated chaos of the crowd at that point that I want you to see because that is God's emphasis in the text. It's the confusion of the crowd. 
Look at it. Twice we are told that this crowd at this point was in confusion. Then, I get your heads around this, not only are they in confusion, we are told that most of this riot, most of this mob, didn't even know what the riot was about. Do you see the chaos? Do you see the mayhem? And then Luke tells us about this guy, Alexander. And Alexander is a Jew, and he's pushed forward in this theater, in this arena to the front. And you can see what's going on. You know, he's sort of saying, you know, you can persecute these Christians, but we are Jews. Keep us out of this. But such is the confusion. So irrational is this crowd at this point. Do you see what they do? They stand before Alexander and they shout at this guy for two solid hours. Friends, do you see the point? Don't you just look at that crowd and see the devil orchestrating all of that? Isn't that the case? Thousands and thousands of people firm in their opposition of Christ and yet not even knowing that that's what they are doing. I mean, they are puppets here in the, in the hand of the evil one. He hates what's happening in Ephesus. He hates the fact that this is a society being transformed by grace and he is doing absolutely everything in his power to, to fight against it. But of course, there is another side to the spiritual battle, isn't there? Now, last week, um, my son had one of his friends round to play. Never seen anything like it in my life. And I was in the living room to witness this, you know. Five-year-olds at play. It was just chaos, you know, toys flying everywhere and the, noise was deafening and then to make it worse just at the loudest point in come the girls as well and it just it just everything just let loose and I was just standing there mouth wide open looking at it and I realized the penny dropped and I realized what I needed I needed one of those judges hammers you know I needed a gavel to sort of hit on something and bring some sort of you know calm to the proceedings in the living room. That's what every dad would have. But look at this. Isn't that the sort of thing that happens in Ephesus? Because you've got a scene of utter confusion. It's a scene of mayhem in this crowd. And then suddenly, verse 35, a city clerk speaks up. And immediately this man brings He brings order to the proceedings here. And what we are supposed to notice, I think, in the text is the contrast between this clerk and the crowd. Do you see the contrast? Against the backdrop of all of this confusion and mayhem, you have from the clerk here one of the most calm and rational speeches you could imagine. We see what he says. It's so rational. He just says to them, look, these Christians have done nothing wrong. Then he says, even if they have, come on, there are legal proceedings to follow. Then he points it out. Wait a minute. If the crowd carries on like this, it is the crowd rather than the Christians who break in the law. It is absolutely rational. And just see how it ends. 
Such is the calm that this man brings that the clerk is quite simply able to just dismiss the riot, dismiss the crowd. Again, I ask you, do you see the point? If you see the hand of the devil in the actions of the crowd, do you not see the hand of the Lord Almighty in the actions of that clerk? Do you not see it? The power of God. That God has a plan. He has a plan to advance the gospel in the Mediterranean world. And it does not matter what is thrown at him. It does not matter how ferocious the devil attacks. It doesn't matter. The Lord can, he can use one, my clerk. He can use a man who is not even a Christian here. And the Lord God can quite simply dissolve a riot. A crowd fierce in its opposition to it. Friends, I want you to see this morning and know that, of course, there will always be in our lives opposition to the work of the gospel. But what I want you to see from this, from Acts 19, is sometimes see the opposition you face is not only going to be dedicated to our shouting against this man, but sometimes... That opposition is going to be entirely irrational. And I ask you this, is that not the prevailing characteristic of the opposition to Jesus Christ in Britain in the 21st century? Is it not just irrational? Humanist groups, secular organizations, the atheists in your life, used, surely, unwittingly, to oppose the gospel, but used so irrationally. So friends, I'm saying to you, you cling to this. You ready? You see this spiritual battle, this spiritual warfare that we are seeing with such clarity and vividness in Ephesus. You cling to the fact that that spiritual war at the cross of Jesus Christ, that war has already been won. It's done and decided that now the gospel of Jesus Christ is irrepressibly advancing to the ends of the earth. That is what's happening. What we see in Ephesus is not just that the gospel is powerful to transform. What we see in Ephesus is that our God reigns. Thirdly, Lastly, we see here that community transformation must be sought in peace. Over the last uh, year, I suppose, we've seen a dramatic rise from ISIS. A group that clearly believes in the use of force Um, to advance their ideologies, uh, the use of terror, to advance what it is that they believe now. As Christians, we obviously do not believe that such a use of force is in any way, shape, or form justifiable, don't we? We know that. 
But it does raise an interesting question, does it not? You know, what methods are appropriate? What methods should we use if we're seeking this advance of the gospel, this gospel transformation? What, how should we, what should we be doing? How, how do we do this? Well, to answer that, I just want to remind you of the purpose of the book of Acts. If somebody said to you at the end of the service, why was Acts written? What would you say? Hopefully you remember that way back at the beginning of Luke's gospel, eh, Luke says that he is writing his gospel and the book of Acts to provide this guy called Theophilus with a very orderly account of not only Jesus' ministry, but the book, uh, the life of the early church. That's, what he's, that's why he's writing the book of Acts. And when we realize that, I wonder, do you see Luke's purpose in recording this stuff here? Luke's purpose in recording the riot. Like, why did he record the riot? Why did Luke record its subsequent dismissal in such massive amounts of detail? Well, in recording this stuff here, Luke is trying to show that the Christian community are innocent of the charge of civic disobedience. That's what he's doing. He's trying to show in recording Acts chapter 19 that the church, the church of Jesus Christ doesn't use violent means. That the church of Jesus Christ doesn't use underhand tactics to advance the gospel. We do not do that. You see, you've got to realize that at the time that he is writing this, most probably Paul the apostle is in jail in Rome. And Paul is, is under charge and so Luke writes this, this letter to Theophilus and to others to say, Paul's innocent. Paul is not an anarchist. Paul is not using civil disobedience to advance the, the gospel. And do you see how he brings this out in the text you have in front of you? I mean, that's why Luke emphasizes the fact that Paul wasn't even involved in this. Paul's trying to get into the theater and he's held back by his friends. That's why the clerk here, he says, see these Christians, they haven't robbed any temples. They haven't broken any laws. That's why the clerk says, it's not the Christians, it's the riot, it's the mob that are guilty of breaking the law. And then, do all the pieces of the jigsaw come together? You take a bit of a step back and you realize, wait a minute, we've seen this before. Peter cleared of charges. Gallio, remember? The Roman proconsul defending Paul, clearing his name. Time and time and time again in the book of Acts, we are seeing that Christians were not involved in civil disobedience. Friends, I hope you see the lesson for us this morning. Do you? In our attempts to honor Jesus Christ, in this congregation's attempts to promote the gospel, we too must not use any sort of underhand means. See, in your witness with your friends, your witness in the workplace, we are not to be hostile. We are not to be aggressive. We must cling to the fact, now please hear this, that it is Christ and it is not a, an enthusiastic Christian that is going to change someone's life. It is Christ. 
that transformation will only happen through the proclamation of the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit. So I'll end with this. You ready for my question? Ready? Who are you voting for in May? Who are you going to vote for in May? See, regardless of who it is you vote for, can I reiterate that no real and lasting change is going to happen? Can I reiterate that lasting, real, and eternal transformation, it only comes through repentance. Repentance and belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. I just want to ask, has that happened? I mean, as you're sitting here in this church this morning, are you sitting there as someone who is transformed? Are you? I mean, you're sitting there, and has your sin been forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ? Has grace come in? Were you a sinner? Now you are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Are you? I mean, are you transformed by God? If so, I'm saying to you, can you not rejoice? Should we not rejoice? Because you know what's going to happen, don't you? One day, we are going to inhabit a society and a community that is entirely free of any injustice. One day, we are going to live in that society where there isn't any unfairness. There isn't any sort of poverty. You and I, as the people of God, we are going to be in a place, a society, where our leadership is entirely perfect. So we should praise God this morning that, that the gospel can transform. It can change everything. And we should thank God, we should praise him this morning, that we will live as his people eternally, forever, in the community of the saints. Let's pray.